Chinese hacking group foils Microsoft security targeting the U.S. government in what's being called an intel gathering scheme. They're fighting everybody's a target. A statement from NATO sparking Beijing's anger, lashing out on day two of a major summit. China sent over 30 fighter jets flying near Taiwan. Police in Hong Kong raiding the family home of an exiled pro-democracy activist. It's a really upsetting and, and shocking escalation. And struggling under U.S. sanctions, China's Huawei is preparing a return to the global 5G smartphone market. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. An apparent spying campaign on the hunt for sensitive information. Chinese hackers foiled Microsoft security to break into U.S. government email systems, including the State Department. Officials called it espionage aimed at intelligence collection. Is the hack targeted and how did Beijing react? NTD's Jason Perry has more. A China-based hacking group has been secretly accessing the email accounts of various U.S. government agencies since May. In addition, the email accounts of about 25 global organizations were also hacked during that time. The news comes from the folks at Microsoft, whose cloud service was hacked. Microsoft didn't specify which organizations had been hacked, but the attack was focused on Western Europe. Microsoft also said the Chinese hacking group used a stolen sign-in key to access the email accounts. White House National Security Council spokesman Adam Hodge said the hack into Microsoft's cloud service only affected unclassified systems. If you mix AI in with uh, quantum computing, uh, you can break RSA encryption standards pretty quickly to get a passcode. I spoke with Rex Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySmart Privacy, about the breach, and he explained a key vulnerability. Today, due to the fact that Google, Apple, and Microsoft are in the surveillance and data mining business, meaning that they're surveilling and data mining their <clears throat> end users for profit to collect information to sell to advertisers, they developed their operating systems today on an open API architecture and uh, that lends itself to surveillance and data mining applications uh, like um, uh, Facebook or TikTok. The problem with that uh, is that hackers are very sophisticated and they know how to exploit these uh, operating systems that are uh, developed on an open API architecture. So if the systems they hacked were not classified, what information could the Chinese Communist Party be trying to get? You know, if you look at some of the government agencies that they hit, um, uh, it could be valuable financial information that they're going after. And it could be just simple discussions about uh, new laws that impact new, uh, uh, that impact may impact the market. It could be to benefit another Chinese company uh, in order for them to gain uh, uh, an advantage within an industry that they're looking to compete in. And he added this. You have to look at China's total um, strategy here. They're, they're, uh, they're fighting, they're, they're utilizing unrestricted hybrid warfare as the foundation of their war against the West. And what that means is warfare without rules where everybody's a target. Investigators are still working to fully understand the complete scope of this hacking incident. Jason Perry, NTD News. Two world powers are back to butting heads. Beijing is lashing out at the world's most powerful military alliance, NATO. 
That's after the alliance came out with a statement saying Beijing's ambitions challenge NATO's interests and values. Despite that message, the organization noted it remains open to engaging with the Chinese regime. The U.S. is NATO's largest military power and leads the alliance. Given that status, Washington has stationed materials and tens of thousands of troops across Europe. That's to support the defense of Western Europe. Reacting to the news, Beijing accused NATO of expanding to the east. It also deployed over 30 fighter jets near Taiwan, its biggest incursion into the airspace surrounding the island in the last three months. Given the back and forth, what's NATO's stance on China? Here's what we're seeing so far. Member states are divided on how to approach the issue. French President Emmanuel Macron has spoken against NATO increasing its focus on China, suggesting NATO should focus on the North Atlantic, another member nation. Hungary said cooperation with China represents opportunities rather than risks. Over in Asia, major regional powers have been seeking more contact with NATO. That's in the face of an ever more aggressive Beijing. Four countries, Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand, attended the NATO summit in Lithuania on Wednesday, while Japan is in talks over setting up a NATO liaison office in Tokyo, which would become the organization's first in Asia. Tokyo and Seoul also signed deals with NATO, spanning areas such as cyber and technology. At the same time, NATO also made it clear that Taiwan is not part of its responsibility. Here's a line that its chief has repeated, both in speeches and writing. China is not our adversary, and we should continue to engage. But Beijing's increasing assertiveness affects our security. He also touched on Beijing's nuclear ambitions. China's nuclear modernization is unprecedented in speed and scale and being carried out with no transparency. Beyond that, the organization has drawn attention to Beijing's increasing global footprint, harmful cyber operations, and how it's remained opaque about its military buildup. Another luxury brand is sparking China's anger. Italian fashion brand Brogari apologized to Beijing this week for not showing Taiwan as part of Chinese territory on its website. For businesses or countries that deal with China, whether or not Taiwan is part of China is a fine line to walk. Beijing sees the island as part of its territory. That's despite never having ruled the island. What did Bulgari do to draw the Chinese regime's fire? On the store locations page of its website, the brand listed Taiwan as is instead of saying China's Taiwan. A Taiwanese news outlet reported on it and China's social media quickly doled out backlash against the brand. Internet users even threatened a boycott. The company later posted a statement saying it, quote, sincerely apologized and immediately corrected the mistake. China is a heavyweight in luxury goods market. A report by PwC says the country will take up a quarter of global market share in two years. But Taiwan isn't the only red line for Beijing. Both Nike and H&M came under fire in China after they expressed concerns over the forced labor in Xinjiang. Amid political turmoil in Russia, a visit by Russian leader Vladimir Putin to China is on the agenda. A Kremlin spokesperson made the announcement Wednesday, adding that now is a good time to build on Russian-Chinese relations. Though there's no official date yet, Russia has been strengthening its ties with China since it sent troops into Ukraine last year. The invasion drove its relations with the West to post-Cold War lows.
Just weeks before Russia launched the war, Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping committed to a no-limits partnership. When fleeing Hong Kong for the UK in 2020, pro-democracy activist Nathan Law cut ties with his family back home to protect them. But three years later, police raided his parents' home in Hong Kong Tuesday, detaining his parents and brother for questioning. That's after the city's chief vowed to hunt down their son and seven others and likened them to rats crossing the street. NTD's UK correspondent Jane Werrell speaks to Mark Sabat, director for the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation, for details. So hi, Mark. It's great to speak with you. Hong Kong activist Nathan Law's brother and parents were taken away for questioning in Hong Kong. Uh, tell me not what we know so far. It's a really upsetting and, and shocking escalation in the way that the Hong Kong authorities are treating um, dissidents or pro-democracy activists who have left Hong Kong. How common is it for the Chinese Communist Party to use this kind of tactic? Well, on mainland China, it's very common, but essentially what it shows is that mainland China is now in Hong Kong and that the one country, two systems uh, uh, policy that's been in place for the last 25 years is completely and utterly dead. The Hong Kong authorities are clearly, purely uh, working at the behest of the Beijing government. Um, they don't follow the basic law and the, the, the laws of Hong Kong. Uh, they're constantly changing and twisting and turning them around to persecute and prosecute uh, people who expose their behavior and expose the, uh, the mission creep of Beijing into Hong Kong. And what should the UK government do now? The British government should immediately call in the Chinese ambassador for a full, for a full explanation about why they are pursuing the family members of somebody who no longer lives in Hong Kong uh, and, and causing that level of distress to somebody who is supposed to be safe uh, on UK borders. The other thing is this is the, the right time for the British government to demand that any British judges still drawing a salary from the Hong Kong authorities um, in Hong Kong to, be, uh, to immediately resign their positions and to say that it's absolutely unacceptable that British judges should be sitting in Hong Kong courts. President Joe Biden on Wednesday extended Hong Kong's emergency status for one year, revoking special privileges the U.S. has granted the city. Biden says that's because Beijing's recent actions have fundamentally undermined Hong Kong's autonomy and pose an extraordinary threat to the U.S. China's foreign affairs arm in Hong Kong blasted the act, calling it self-defeating and hegemonic. Our next update zooms in on a pair of space rivals in a battle for dominance above the clouds. China successfully launched the world's first methane liquid oxygen rocket Wednesday, sending it into orbit and beating out Elon Musk's SpaceX. According to Chinese state media, the carrier rocket blasted off in northwest China and completed its first flight. The launch marked a milestone achievement, signaling the next generation of vehicles headed for space. Methane liquid rockets are low-cost, high-performance due to their fuel source and represent one of the most significant directions in space technology research. They're also expected to grow popularity among Chinese aerospace companies. China's launch is something to keep an eye on for U.S. rivals as both sides work towards breakthroughs in space development. Huawei has been in survival mode ever since the U.S. hit it with sanctions and blocked its access to high-end microchips. But now the Chinese tech giant is planning a return to the 5G smartphone market by the end of the year. Let's zoom in. 
That's according to leading research firms who argue Huawei could now get hold of 5G chips domestically. It's possible due to advances in Huawei's own semiconductor design tools and chip making by Chinese firm SMIC. A return to the 5G phone market would be a victory for the company after years of restrictions. In 2019, the US cut Huawei's access to chip making tools. At one time, it competed with Apple and Samsung to be the world's biggest handset maker. Huawei's consumer business revenue peaked at $67 billion in 2020, but plummeted by almost half a year later. Since then, Huawei has only sold limited batches of 5G models using stockpiled chips. US and European governments have called Huawei a security risk, which the company denies. Chinese media reported this month Huawei had raised its mobile shipment target to 40 million units for this year. The research firms said Huawei could produce a 5G version of flagship models like the P60 this year, while new launches could happen in early 2024. But US restrictions still hurt. Washington cut Huawei off from Google's Android operating system, which limits the appeal of Huawei handsets outside of China. Huawei and SMIC did not comment on the report. Another big story to look out for, a new battleground for the U.S.-China power struggle, the ocean floor. That's where an undersea cable firm is secretly helping America take on China. What's inside Washington's latest strategy to compete? That report and more coming up on tomorrow's China in Focus. But coming up today, the latest numbers on China's economy are painting a grim picture. Prices of Chinese goods and services are falling at their fastest rate in over seven years. While the consumer side teeters on the edge of deflation. The public is now urging policymakers toward more stimulus to revive sluggish demand. What's the pulse on the world's second largest economy? We sat down with Brian McCarthy, chief strategist at Macrolands, for details. His comments after the break here on China in Focus. And welcome back. China teetering on the edge of deflation. Producer prices sinking again in June, the latest sign of a stalled post-pandemic recovery. What does the future hold for the world's factory, and will the U.S. benefit from China's fall? We speak to Brian McCarthy, chief strategist at MacroLens, for more. Joining me is Brian McCarthy, chief strategist at MacroLens. So now, China being on the brink of deflation, what's the consequence of this? Sure. So the consumer price index is zero in China, uh, but the more important metric is the producer price index, minus 5.4 percent. Um, this is the lowest we've seen in, in many years in China. It's, it's a, a threat of deflation on a consumer level, but again, they're actually in deflation on a producer price level. Um, the key dynamic there is that suppresses revenue growth in the industrial sector, which then struggles to service its debt. So the banks need to basically provide credit to those entities just so that they can roll over uh, past debts. And, and then, then less of the credit they extend is going to building new bridges and tunnels and factories, et cetera. So the producer price deflation really undercuts the efficacy of any credit stimulus that they might come up with. What is China facing on the horizon because of all, all this? Right. So what it adds up to is they have homegrown economic problems in that the credit-fueled infrastructure and real estate-focused growth model is at an end. 
they've decided not to go back to that. They don't really have anything to replace those growth drivers with. So you're, you're, you've got a ser very serious um, lack of confidence domestically, which is compounded by this international influence of very tight Fed policy, which transmits via low global commodity prices to producer price deflation in China. So these things also make it harder to, to stimulate policy. They make stimulus less effective. And, and this is not a situation for which there are any easy answers. For the regular Chinese citizen, I mean, these headwinds that the Chinese economy is facing, what does that add up to for everyday Chinese uh, citizens? Uh, a lack of employment opportunity, um, increasing hardship for small businesses, uh, which were effectively hung out to dry during the pandemic lockdowns. They received none of the subsidies that uh, small businesses in the West received to help them you know, bridge that, that, uh, that difficult time period. There were some marginal tax cuts, but that's about it. So you've got a, a, a household sector that is suffering from its most important assets being in the wake of a price bubble that has burst. You've got small businesses still in a hole from the pandemic, struggling with a general lack of confidence. And you've got industrial China struggling with uh, you know, decreasing negative pricing power effectively, as illustrated by the, the deeply negative PPI inflation. So again, it adds up to nothing good. And I will say that the market is very excited about stimulus because in the past, China has found a way to stimulate its way out of these pickles. At least that is the perception. I mean, do Chinese policymakers have any options at all in your eyes? No, the market seems to be hoping for Chinese policymakers to revert to the old model, build a bunch more bridges and tunnels and airports that they don't need, um, you know, have have state-owned enterprises invest in lower negative value-added projects, all these things which we know do nothing but kick the can down the road. Okay, Xi Jinping is in his mind leader for life. He has no one to kick that can to. There, there's no better time than now to address that problem because he only makes it worse for himself and he makes it worse in a way that in his mind, I believe, will prevent him from achieving his overarching agenda for China, which is to make it one of the great powers of the 21st century, to have China's economic model be a competitive counterweight globally to the US and the West uh, and all these you know, big picture things that he has in mind. Pumping up GDP to keep some unemployed kids happy is very low on his agenda. And if he can corral that, really focus hearts and minds on putting together a better central plan, then the Chinese uh, economy can still grow under this political and economic model. It's a fantasy, but I, I believe that's what he sees as the way out of this pickle, which means, in my eyes, they're not getting out. Do you think these uh, economic problems could reach a point that is unreversible, even if the global environment becomes better? Yeah, I, I think it is irreversible in the absence of a move to a new kind of economic system or what people broadly used to call reform, right? Um, which we all know is simply incompatible with Xi's vision for how he wants to run the country because reform ultimately uh, you know, necessitates a surrender of power over resources on the part of the CCB.
they have to let the market allocate resources. But that's frightening to them. So that's not going to happen. So with, with this government and this form of government and its views on how the economy should be managed, this only gets worse in my book. This is, this is a one-way street to you know, negative GDP growth at some point, maybe sooner rather than later, um, but certainly in the next couple of years. But if China is in a deflationary uh, environment, could that situation actually benefit the U.S.? If you're in the in the framing of a, a great power struggle, then we benefit from problems in China's economy. Yes. And frankly, because China doesn't really purchase much of anything uh, that's that's uh, the, anything in terms of final products that are made in the rest of the world are very small. Um, it doesn't really hurt the West if China's growth sucks wind, basically, which I, which I think it's going to continue to do. So from that perspective, um, you know, I don't think the West is going to be under any pressure to do anything to help China out of this pickle. The one thing that could change that if we start to see precipitous declines in the RMB and then and, and then that transmits China's problems to the rest of the world because they're sort of trying to devalue their way into competitiveness, steal growth from the West. All right. Thank you so much today, um, Brian. It's a pleasure speaking to you. All right. Thanks, Don. Take care. And that's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.